Welcome, y'all. Grab a sheet as you come in if you don't have one already. Um, so, can everybody hear me okay? I'm betting you can. So I'm Liz Edrington, and I was a youth director at a church in Charlottesville, Virginia for six years after college, and then I went to RTS Orlando to get my counseling degree, and currently live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I have a counseling practice on Mondays, and then I work for this fantastic church, North, North Shore Fellowship, the rest of the week, kind of with youth and singles and college students and fellows. And um, I feel called first and foremost to the church, kind of so that I can work myself out of a job through a quick a counseling job through equipping the church and I just love I get a kick out of kind of looking at the relationship between psychology and theology so that's what we're going to do today and um, the first question I'm going to ask you is who is someone you felt very connected to growing up I want you to actually think about somebody in your mind who did you feel connected to as a kid and why and then anybody share what made you feel connected to this person in your life growing up Affirmation. What else? Proximity. Hmm. Proximity. Love. You felt loved by them. Fun. Fun. Conversation. Conversation. Amount of time spent together. Amount of time spent together. Mm -hmm. So all these things, all these ingredients that go into a relationship that mean a lot to us. For me, I think about a young life leader when I was growing up who. She was a safe place for me. My family wasn't always a safe place to be known and heard, but she was. Allison was amazing. And um, it, it, these connections that we've made that are significant to us speak to something important. They speak to the design that all of us had to be connected. What I love about attachment theory is that it's this picture of the relational heart and nature of God, and yet it's scientifically researched to show things. So I'm getting ahead of myself, but... Um, what I love is that it, attachment theory essentially shows us what we're made for in the way the gospel does and even points to a picture of hope through how you can use it in therapy and how I think it can inform our youth ministries too. Um, so I'm going to start just give some foundations before we dive into what attachment theory is. And you'll see at the top of your sheet, kind of just hit some highlights. So to start and think about the Trinity, think Trinity over here, and we're going to go attachment theory here. And Perichoresis is that big fancy theological word for the dynamic of the Trinity. So it shows us relationship is at the core of our God. He is relationship in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he exists in eternal triune community. So we don't, you and I as youth workers, we don't create community. We just participate in what has always been. The Trinity is eternal community. He has always been and always will be community. So there's kind of a freedom in knowing this isn't up to you to create. We're really just enjoying it. And that's kind of my prayer with this workshop, too. I don't know that I'm going to have anything really creative and new to share, but I pray it would allow you to enjoy Jesus more and even offer that to your students. Um, so one of my favorite quotes, this Richard Sibbs quote from The Successful Seeker says, If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would never have created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves. Aseity is that word that was used earlier, and enjoyed one another before the world was. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or redemption. So this is this overflow of goodness into creation that we, in our youth ministries and small groups and Sunday schools, get to kind of just share in. And I loved the picture that Mary Wilson talked about, joy, just kind of this effusive joy that's contagious. 
it's a part of what we get to do. Okay, so perichoresis, trinity over here. Common grace is going to be the bridge that we use uh, to kind of look at the relationship between the trinity and attachment theory. And that's what allows us to consider biblically supported truths that we can glean from non-biblical sources, like empirically based psychological theories, like attachment theory. So common grace is great. We're going to use it. Helps us gain truths from the world that kind of just point up to biblical truths. We love it. They explore it further. And so together, psychology and theology enjoy a relationship that allows us to better understand God, ourselves, and others. I kind of think, think probably because of John Frame, think of a lot of things in triangles. So God, ourselves, and others is a big triangle I use a lot. How does this relate to God, myself, and someone else? No matter what I'm talking about. Um, and this can help us catch a vision for the Spirit's work in bringing growth and healing and wholeness to our students even. <coughs> I think about that a lot with clients, obviously, um, as clients come in wanting healing. And the same with our students who are asking, what is hope? What is life that is different in Christ? What does union with Christ even do? What can it do? And attachment theory provides this beautiful picture of kind of hope, healing, wholeness. What can happen? Um, and that can, all of this can kind of help us understand better. You too in your own life, my prayer would be, you'd better understand where you're coming from, where you are, and where you're going. Same with your students. It's probably another triangle. I love triangles. Um, John Calvin, in the Institutes of the Christian, Christian Religion, says, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, comes in two parts. <clears throat> the knowledge of God and of ourselves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in one God. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to him. So here's this mysterious articulation of, in knowing ourselves, we also get to know God, and Imago Dei, this image of God in us, this mystery. So your relationship to yourself is a big part of what plays out in your ministry, and attachment theory can be a really neat way to help uncover some of that. Um, and I like to think, too, it's not this curved-in, granted sin impacts everything, but we're not just digging in our souls and wondering about ourselves and our insight for that, that sake, for the sake of yourself, but unto knowing the Lord more and knowing his love more and having something different to share with your students about your story, where God's met you in your story. Um, for me, it's meant I can speak from my story bit by bit, a little bit better versus out of my head, which is a big struggle for me. So, attachment theory. We meant Trinity, common grace, attachment theory. Um, which in a nutshell articulates and considers the way humans connect or fail to connect with their primary giver, pr primary caregiver in infancy. And it looks at kind of the resulting way those, that connection or lack of connection plays out relationally in different styles of relating. So it affirms and illustrates some of those beautiful relational realities of the gospel to me and helps us to understand some of the specific ways also that sin impacts human relationships. So as a, is there a tagline to this workshop, it would be, it's in relationship that we're wounded, and it's in relationship that we heal. Not just insight in our heads, not just behavior modification, but it's in and through relationship that we heal. And that in and of itself speaks to the gospel. Um, but what's so neat is that attachment theory points out, you are created for connection for this emotional and physical 
whole body connection as a child, to be loved and known, this should be ringing some bells in your head, that's creation, about people and God, created for relationship with God. Then when something is broken, when there is not the secure connection we're made for, which is what attachment theory explores, there's fall, there's brokenness. So this is sin entering into the world. And um, attachment theory really describes kind of how disconnection and isolation and self-reliance even yield pathology. So they yield trouble and issues. And so it's kind of even just teasing out the way sin can look. So that's your fall. And then redemption is going to kind of be through relationship. We know that ultimately that's in Jesus Christ. Attachment theory is exploring a way that can still look with another human being in a different point in time, bringing healing into someone's life, um, helping them to love. And um, attachment theory kind of points to the larger reality of what we're made to know and enjoying the Trinity, enjoying that fellowship, being united with Christ, knowing that rooted and groundedness in a God who is before time, who is through all of time, who came for us, and being adopted into the body of Christ. That's a big thing to think about, too, with our kids. How are we? I'm jumping ahead of myself again, but integrating them into the church, into an adopted family that loves them when a lot of the time our family doesn't and isn't a safe place to be known and loved. Um, so there are high stakes for being disconnected. And even it talks about an inclination to kind of hide and isolate. Attachment theory does all oh, this. This is just sin kind of playing out. So I'm going to tell you a story. Stories are helpful. There is a man named Bruce Perry who wrote this book. And he is a doctor, PhD, specializes in child trauma. And he's a senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy in Texas and has worked with just massive amounts of um, amazing things. Um, and tells the story in this book about a child named Laura who's four years old and her mom named Virginia. And so he comes into this setting where Laura is four, she's 25 pounds, She's your classic failure to thrive, is what they call it. Hooked up to all these tubes in the hospital. She has had every test, seen every oncologist, um, every specialist you can imagine, and no one can figure out why she's failing to thrive. She's going to perish because she cannot put on weight. They're pumping calories into her stomach, and she will not grow. And he even tells the story about these psychiatrist interns coming in saying, maybe she has infantile anorexia, and they get really excited, and it's... it's Kind of ridiculous. Like people just cannot figure out what is going on with her, and they've tried everything. Um, and he comes into this room, this hospital room. He literally, he said there are like a four-foot stack of documents of all the tests that have been done on this child. Um, so everything science, medicine could offer, they've tried. And so he comes into this room and sees Laura sitting on the bed, and Virginia, her mom, who's 22, sitting next to her, just watching TV, kind of very disconnected. They're both kind of coexisting. And kind of opens the file and thinks, I'm not going to read thousands of pages about this. I'm just going to start asking her story, getting to know Virginia, the mom, and what's going on here. And so he sits down and begins to learn that Virginia had her child when she was 18. She grew up in foster care from the time she was a baby. So Virginia's mom had been a crack addict. And this was back in a time when they moved foster kids every six months because they didn't want them to become too connected to their caretakers which we now know, of course, is not very good. Um, so she'd been moved every six months her whole life. And when she was 17, she had become a part of this family, this Christian family that she loved and felt loved by, kind of wanted to live right, got a great set of morals. Um, 
But when that six month ended and she became 18, because of that system, she had to move out and had to literally disconnect from them, could not ever be in contact with them again, which is really sad. So she moved out into the world and got pregnant and um, began trying to raise her baby. Um, What's one part of the story? The next part of the story is this woman, Mama P, who Bruce Perry meets leading a clinic in a low-income area months before this situation. And Mama P is a foster mom. She's this big, beautiful woman who speaks her mind and wears moo-moos, is how he describes her, like, I was going to tell her something, but she told me. Um, And she talks about loving her babies. She gets these kids who are very, very broken and takes them in and loves them. She talks about rocking them, even when they're seven, um, loving on them, and seeing change in their lives. So Bruce, instead of kind of thinking, like, I'm, I'm very medically minded and trained, just listens. He listens to the way Mama P loves her kids. And when he meets Laura in Virginia, he thinks, I kind of wonder if Mama P has something to offer them. And so what he does is he connects them, he introduces them, and both Laura and Virginia move into Mama P's house, where she just starts loving on him. And in one month, in one month, after years of tests on this child, who's had literally nutrients pumped into her stomach and is not growing, not putting on any weight, one month of being held and rocked, both of these, this mother and daughter being loved on, hugged, there's humor in this household, there's Mama P like running the ship, um, she puts on 10 pounds, 10 pounds, and begins to teach the mom how to emotionally connect with her daughter. And, and it's healing, and it's hopeful, and it physically changes her daughter and gives her a life. It still blows me away. Um, so what seems simple ends up being very complex and beautiful and leading to healing. Um, and I tell you that because I think relationship and what we do, relationship itself is the vessel, it's the space of ministry, and it's far more powerful than we know. What you guys do in sitting with your kids and listening to them and reflectively engaging with them is far more powerful than you know. It speaks to their value, their worth of Jesus, and I know with me, even here now, like I want to convey all this information to you, but really to be able to sit with you and know your story and care for you would probably be more meaningful, more powerful. Um, So hear that, hear the the power of what happens in relationship. And this is not to say that, you know, everything is fixed. He kind of ends the story by talking about how both Laura and Virginia, years later, he goes back and sees them. And, you know, they're kind of interacting in a different way and she's grown up, but they will always speak love kind of as a language with a lisp. And I think that's good for all of us to think about as Christians, too. We're all kind of special needs Christians. We all speak the language of love with a lisp. There's no one here who's got it down. We're in a posture of need, and we share that need with each other, but there's something profound that happens in community, in trusting Jesus, and in wanting to love one another and seeing him love us. Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to read you just real quick. This line, oh, I may have lost it in this book. I didn't. So this is a man who's not a Christian um, and is trying to share some of the hardest cases he has worked with in terms of child trauma. And his conclusion, brilliant man, is what works best is anything that increases the quality and number of relationships in the child's life. And the next thing he says is relationships matter. The currency for systematic change was trust and trust that comes through forming healthy working relationships. People, not programs, change people. And that's really what we say with the gospel, is the person of Jesus Christ changes us. And he came and changed the world. Um, so that's kind of the background for then launching into attachment theory.
Um, and I want you to keep your ears perked while I'm talking about it for when you hear and recognize kind of biblical and gospel illustrations in and through it. So I've got some of those big names on your worksheet. John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and Harry Harlow. And in the 60s, Mary Ainsworth kind of got this all kicked off with the infant strange situation where she took 106 babies between the ages of 11 and 18 months and their mothers, and she brought them into a room with toys to play with. And then she had the mother leave the room, and then a stranger came in when the child was still playing to spend a little time with the child. Then the mother came back in and spent time with both. And then both of them left, and they observed the kid kind of through a one-way mirror, and gave the child three minutes to play by itself. And then when the mother came back in, they observed how the child interacted with the mother. So what was the kid doing? Did the kid go to the mother and cling to her anxiously? Did the child go to her, check in, be comforted, and then go back and play? Did the child stand there and start rocking or screaming or biting its hands? That'd be disorganized. Um, so what did it do? That's what they observed and started asking the question, what is the connection between mother and child and what does it do? <coughs> so from that, um, maybe I'll explain really quickly to you. Harry Harlow and the Rhesus Monkeys, just because it's written on there, and if you don't know what it is, it's going to sound weird. Um, some, one of the more fascinating experiments that was done when Harry Harlow took <coughs> baby Rhesus Monkeys and <coughs> took them away from their mothers and created a wire monkey that had terry cloth on it, so a soft, comforting wire monkey, and then another monkey that had milk, so sustenance, a way for <coughs> the monkeys to survive, and they wondered, what are they going to do? And over time, when they watched these monkeys, what happened was they would go get some milk from the wire mother and go immediately to the terry cloth mother for comfort and connect to it, attach to it. And they spent all their time with the terry cloth mother. That's what they wanted, that's what they needed. So this also kind of began creating questions for these folks doing research. What does that mean? What does connection mean, look like? What are the implications? And so I think maybe we're to the back side of your paper almost. What they begin exploring were attachment styles. This is what can help bring some insight into your own life too, I think, into our kids. <coughs> that there are four different ways that that, so insecure or secure attachment looked like, kind of how it laid out. And that's secure, and then the insecure attachment would be anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. And I kind of wrote on there, there the outcomes that are presumed to arise from different parenting behaviors, but mostly evolving around revolving around emotional availability and responsiveness. So are you emotionally available to your child? Are you reflecting their emotions back to them? Um, are you able to empathize with them? Are you able to take space when you're angry and need space? Um, emotional availability. And then responsiveness would be meeting your child's needs, showing up for them when they do, as well as <laughs> leaving your child to be able to comfort themselves. So there's a whole bunch that goes into this. We're doing a little drive-by here, so I'm not gonna go into all of it, but those are the two basics, emotional availability and responsiveness. Um, and what's so beautiful is that secure attachment, which is about 55% of the population, um, it is this picture of reliance and dependence on God. You just kind of imagine in your head it's the child that can depend on and fully trust in a parent who knows how to show up for them and meet their needs, which is what we're made for in, in God. And when that's true, secure attachment happens for humans. And insecure attachment is this picture of broken trust confused trust in a broken relationship, kind of between man and God in the fall, but obviously child and caretaker in infancy. 
And so both therapy and youth ministry can become spaces for what are called corrective emotional experiences. Um, not another great phrase would be incarnational love. A lot of what we do in loving our kids in youth ministry. Um, so it's the place where a kid who's never had someone actually validate their emotions, like their parents listen to them, but then talk about, actually I had this experience just a couple nights ago. One of my high school girls was telling me something, and I kind of said, man, it sounds really hard. I see, like, your eyes are a little teary, like you're sad. She said, yeah, like, often when I tell my mom something, she just starts talking about a recipe or something as soon as I finish talking, and I get really frustrated. So she hasn't had her, her emotions validated. And y'all, emotional validation is so, so important. And it's not to say, go live out of your emotions. But when you do know and are able to validate your own emotions, then you're not reacting in the same way as quickly to everything around you because you're, you can check in and ask what's happening and then decide, how do I want to react out of that? Um, I'm still at the very beginning, I'd say at age 31, of learning to validate my own emotions that I can then <laughs> decide, okay, here's what's going on in me. What do I want to offer to someone else instead of just reacting really quickly or self-protecting, so getting really, really heady in my mind. We self-protect in all sorts of ways. Um, okay, so attachment styles. We've got secure and anxious and preoccupied, fearful avoidant, and dismissing avoidant, as you'll kind of look down. Um, the secure person, just kind of have some descriptions. If you can kind of think of somebody in your mind while I'm talking, talking about this, it might help you um, getting a picture of what I'm talking about. So secure would be, this is the well-adjusted person who doesn't struggle with intimacy, who can ask for what they want and need, as well as depend on, be dependent on for emotional support. Which, like, who is this person? <laughs> they are out there. I met one once, um, but it is real. So. They have no problem getting close to others. They're comfortable being dependent and depended on, and they don't worry about being abandoned. Um, so this was the person when a parent would return to the room, thinking about that child's situation again. The child would seek proximity, so they'd go close to the parent, and they'd make contact, they'd be soothed, and then they return to playing. Um, next up would be anxious and preoccupied, so it's about 10 to 15% of the population. And for these folks, um, this is kind of the insecure person who isn't sure they can ask for help. Maybe they don't know how. And they might worry that their friends, close friends, or their spouse is going to leave them. They might fear abandonment. And they want to be close to others, but they're not 100% sure others want to be close to them. Um, and this would be when the parent returned to the room, the child would go cling to the parent and stay with them. So that's kind of the anxious attachment. Next set would be fearful avoidant. That's about 20% of the population. And these folks are the people who are uncomfortable with emotional intimacy, although they kind of want it. Um, they fear that they're going to hurt others if they come too close. Uh, and they might ask the question, will I ever be able to let someone love me? Um, they wonder if they can depend on anyone. And they're kind of un uncomfortable with the idea of trusting or depending on anyone. Uh, and this is the child. So when the mom came back into the room, the child would kind of avoid them and act as if the mom hadn't even come back. So they'd do their own thing. And the last one, dismissing avoidant, 10 to 15% of the population. So this is someone who isn't even interested in close relationships. They're very dependent, they're very self-sufficient, and they prefer not to rely on anyone or have anyone rely on them. So they desire a high level of independence. And they can be very detached, disengaged, self-sufficient, and they might even deny needing close relationships. So 
it was like a very hard person. And the two axes, I wrote that on the back of your sheet, there's a little chart that can be helpful for thinking about this in another way. There are two different um, dimensions that attachment responses are organized on that relate to anxiety and avoidance. So high anxiety, you'll see on the top, is going to be more of a negative attitude towards self. You'll see that in anxious and fearful avoidant attachment styles. And then low anxiety, secure and dismissing avoidant. And it all kind of connects to then you've got a positive attitude toward others and towards self. And that lower left box is secure. And everything else moves out in relating to negative attitude towards self and toward others with avoidance. All right, cruising. So implications for youth ministry, where we really kind of want to end up and where I'd love to have more conversation toward the end of this. Um, one of the things I think, for me, it's meant the most of is, is, again, making me think about both not just my horizontal relationships with the church, but my vertical relationship with the Lord, and for myself being connected personally to people older than me who are pouring into me, as well as being connected to the church personally. That plays out into my ministry, and making sure my kids are both connected individually with my volunteer leaders, as well as connected in the broader church are valuing all of the lives, all the stages that are there. Um, so it reminds us to keep relationship and fellowship and worship and enjoyment of the Trinity at the core of our ministry. That's one huge implication I would draw. We can get caught up in programs, caught up in trying to preach the right messages, caught up in mission trips, but to keep this fellowship, worship, that like beautiful joy that Mary talked about at the core of our ministry, so important. I kind of see it in our volunteer leader team. We've got 14 wonderful people, and a part of what we know blesses our students is enjoying one another. So we get to know each other, and we go out and have fun, and we laugh, and we joke, and it's the picture of the goodness of the Trinity spilling out over into creation. It's, we want that joy to spill out over into our kids, and I think they catch it. It's contagious. It's this caught-not-taught kind of thing um, where the Lord shows up. Um, so that's one. Considering the man as well as the message. So. We can often lose sight of the mystery of an incarnate God and our relationship with him as we write our youth group talks, certainly we study our commentaries for Sunday school and small group lessons. We can re reduce our relational God to an abstract concept, idea, or theology, which has been such a part of my story. I'm sure it always will be. Um, we make him into an idea instead of this living, relational, mysterious God that connects us to one another and to himself. He knew continually connects us to himself. This is the one-way love that reaches us and holds us and comes after us. He's the hound of heaven. Um, he's the picture of that secure connection that we're made for, of a parent meeting our needs, being with us emotionally, visibly. Um, it's, it's that. So really becoming aware, for me, it's becoming aware more often of when I am up in my head and when I'm even here now, when I'm speaking to you out of information instead of my heart, where Christ has met me and my heart and my story. Um, Step by step, my prayer continues to be that God would meet me in the moment and speak out of me and through me from there and not just from information in my head, which he also does use, I trust. Um, a third implication reminds us that Christ in us is our secure base and our wellspring of life. He is the biggest reality we have to offer our students. Um, again, this comes from my story thinking like, I get really caught up in wanting to have the right thing to say and the right answer to a question. I want to have the best talk ever. Um, 
But man, when a kid is suffering and sitting with you, you know this from your own lives. You don't need an, an answer. It's not what you're looking for. You're looking for someone to be with you, to grieve with you, to suffer with you, to sit with you in the struggles of life. And I don't know that you can do that apart from yourself, because you have to kind of assume a posture of powerlessness to do that while a kid is suffering or struggling. For you to be securely rooted and be reminding yourself, I am secure in Christ. Like I am safe here. I can be powerless here, powerless because Christ was powerless for my, on my behalf. Um, it reminds you yourself in these hard places that Christ is your, your ability to sit with a kid, your right to be present in youth ministry at all. Um, next would be, it indicates that youth ministry should be a relational process far more than a moral boot camp, an information downloading process, or merely a serving outlet, which probably for most people here is like, this is not how we've constructed our youth ministries, but it's, a, it's affirming of that. Um, this plays out in how we teach our kids, how we structure our events, how we relate to our coworkers and volunteer leaders, and how we relate to the broader church, and how we relate to ourselves, because we too need to be in safe, healthy, life-giving relationships. So. It's um, a reminder that the, everything we put on is not just about the program and what we're putting on, but it's about the process. It's even in this conference where the things have gone wrong, and we're kind of like laughing about them and seeing like, well, I wonder what the Lord's going to do here. That didn't record at all. Well, you know, we'll see. <laughs> like, it's the process as much, if not more, than the content and than the program. Process is so important, so much more mysterious, um, but even the, the process of how you're relating to other people here speaks of attachment and of all these things we're kind of talking about here. So how? Um, the how we relate to the broader church is one really important one. And for our kids too, helping them connect beyond their immediate social group, however that can look, it's going to look different in each of your contexts. But for us, I think about this student, this high school girl I have, and I'm going to call her Kate, um, who just has the most ridiculous things happening in her home right now. Um, a father who has left twice, had an affair, lived with her, came back, just came back again, left. They were blaming her for him leaving the second time. Oh, I love her. Um, she loves Jesus. And she, in the last year, because her now ex-boyfriend was going to our church, started coming to my small group, coming to our youth group. And right before they broke up, she had decided, I want to make this church my home. I felt loved here. I want to be connected. And I watched, we do this thing called Pray For Me couple Sundays ago where all the kids who want to come line the walls of the church and about 250 adults sign up for one year to pray for one student intentionally. So you get three adults from three generations if possible and the students actually have to go up and ask the adults, will you pray for me? Even if they don't know them. So it's this awkwardness, which I kind of love, like pushing into awkwardness is definitely my thing. Um, and it's beautiful chaos. There are kids running around like one just ran down the aisle, kind of loved it. Um, and the adults are standing there like, am I going to get picked? It's back to middle school dodgeball, you know. Um, and what came of this, this girl who, her family doesn't go to our church, she asked three folks from this church to pray for her, and by the end of that day, three of them had already, like, plans to take her out to dinner. That, like, just weeks, days later, rather, so when everything is falling around her, the church is becoming a safe place for her to know she's loved and continue to be prayed for and poured into. And that, that is what we're made for. It's the connection we're made for. It's the intergenerational fellowship we're made for. And she's going to find healing there. And 
rootedness through Christ, through her body, um, or she doesn't have it at home. So I love that. And um, keep it moving. This allows us to give more grace to our students, and I hope receive more ourselves understanding this. Um, because some of our sinful and broken styles of relating, that place where you're terrified to be known and you see yourself react angrily, or you're clingy, or you're self-sufficient, or you have bad social anxiety, um, a lot of these connect to someone else's sin against you. And that doesn't excuse it, but that means it's not totally your fault. There's grieving to be had, not just self-contempt or beating yourself up, but um, some of our wounding comes from other people. And that's what therapy is for, <laughs> amongst other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hear that. Know that about your kids, because it can be quick just to be really dismissive and frustrated and annoyed. And it's not always totally their fault. Um, it also points to the beauty of a need for intergenerational connectedness, kind of like I talked about, big First Corinthians 12 stuff, and provides a picture of hope, healing, and wholeness in the Christian life. Uh, I know for me going to seminary, wondering... Like, I think I've got this justification down. Like, I know Christ has died for me. There's nothing I could do. Is there any hope for change? And this side of the Jordan, sometimes we don't see a lot of change and we just get used to justification over and over. We get used to hearing, I need Jesus. The cross is for me. It is finished. It is finished. There is also union with Christ. There is also a God at work in this world that is shaping us more into love. And I think, if anything, it's not that I used to have this picture of, I'm just getting better and better and like ascend into this wonderful like perfection. And it's really this descent into, I know Jesus more and more, I know my need for him, more rather, more and more, and and I think that I become more broken, and I hope more love pours out of me is kind of how that looks, like more willing to give and receive love somehow through his spirit, less like, I've got the answers, more like, I don't know, but I want to love you here. Um, and I think that's growth, it's growth, descent into need, and into seeing God show up there, and and work, maybe trusting him a little more, or at least recognizing when you need to trust him or repent more often. Um, it's becoming more human. It's one of my favorite ways to think about it. More interdependent on one another, on the body of Christ, on each other. It's less like, I am a perfect robot. More like, I'm a broken sinner who still needs Jesus. And I'm going to share that with you. We're going to confess together. God's going to meet us there. Um, it's those people like this morning that you just want to sit and be around because there's no pretense. They're not pretending. They, they're broken. They know you're broken. You both need Jesus. There's a relief in sitting around Scotty Smith. There's a relief in sitting with people who know their need for the grace of God. And I think we become more human in that. It's um, being more willing to risk vulnerably for the sake of relationship. You see this show up in your marriages. And with your kids too, I think willing to be able to offer a little bit of your heart, which is scary and powerless. It's um, knowing security in God more that, that allows you to offer that vulnerably. And I think I realize that's a drive-by, but I'm going to kind of stop there so we can engage it and read to you. Adoption is a huge theme in this, thinking about the importance of that, as well as... Um, connection to the church and the body. So I'm going to read Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you're his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave. When I think slave, I think enslaved to the wounds done to you, the harm you and the sin you do unto others. You are no longer a slave to trying to fix yourself, justify yourself, become better. You're no longer a slave to worshiping the things of the world that don't bring you life and are exhausting, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So again, it's that, uh, Robbie Holt, my pastor, was talking about like a seatbelt around you. In being united with Christ, you are, you are held in this eternal loving relationship that is what you were made for at your core. It's that God-shaped hole Pascal talks about. It's the greatest security we could ever hope or ask for. And it does trickle out into horizontal relationships, but in Christ it's the most full and um, always should be what we come back to. So I'm going to stop there so we can do a little bit of questions before lunch. And yeah. Anyone have any initial questions? I'll make an initial statement. First of all, thank you. Thanks, Kathy. How about anything that rumbled in your head while I was talking? Either a student you're thinking about, a situation, something you thought, I wonder how this could apply or connect. Yeah. One of my basics, I just wonder, Liz, if you have um, reading resources, you know, for those of us who want to press deeper into this and don't have a counseling degree, mm-hmm. um, what would you rec- where would you recommend we start to read? Reading resources, that's a great, great question. Um, you didn't think about it until me later. Yeah. I think there, there are some guys like Dan Ellender and Dr. Groat, we were talking about them earlier, who are very grounded in attachment theory that write in an accessible way that helps you start thinking about story, your own story, and the biblical narrative of story, that I would, I would say they're a great place to start. They're less like, here's attachment theory, but right. it under, undergirds it. So to be told by Dan Allender and um, leaving Egypt by Chuck DeGroote are two great, they're just very easy to read. They'd be great to read with your leader, volunteer leader groups to engage, definitely to engage with people or with a counselor because they can stir up things that need stirring up. Okay. Um, what was the second one? To be told. To be told in leaving Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, suppose that you have a group of student leaders or uh, volunteer leaders, youth leaders. Uh, what, what's one way that you begin to, I guess, educate them on this in a way that doesn't put them in a supu- place of superiority? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love how you brought us in and said, you know, this is a com- this is broken human right. nature, right? Yeah. Uh, what's one way we can begin that re- like conversation with our student leaders and our, our youth leaders, saying, you know, be aware of this, be on mm-hmm. the lookout for this. Some kids, mm-hmm. you know, suffer more from this th- than others. Um, but in a way that brings us on the same level with them. Great question. So how do we engage it with our youth leaders in a way that doesn't make us the, the guru yeah. um, and helps, helps them to understand the kids better? Honestly, what first comes to mind is being able to speak from your own story, um, humbly praying about that, always praying first and asking the Lord, like, where, where in this do I see myself? And I can offer that for better or for worse, because I think both are equally as powerful to be able to say, I think maybe I have more of a secure base, and without that, this is what it would look like. Um, or to say, you know, here's what I've discovered about myself and the way I relate, and 
through asking these questions, even thinking about the questions you're asking yourself to be able to come to, to that understanding. Um, these are kind of what we can ask about the kids that we work with. And I'm wondering, uh, like, as far as disseminating some of this information, do you see it happening in a more formal setting like this, where you have like a, a day of like, let's do leader training and address this, or does this just become a practicum of like your, your, it just becomes part of your language and they see it? I think more. I think of it more as part of your language. I don't know that you can go wrong. I think God could lead you to do either. Um, but even with those books, thinking about story and how we understand our stories, how we relate again to kind of God, self, and others, is that how we relate? Really asking that question, where do I self-protect? Where am I anxious? Where am I not loving? Um, you find that out through your story, I think, in community. Really just telling your stories to one another and listening to one another and knowing them. And then you yourself listening for, I wonder about this, being curious about their stories, helping them be curious with each other. Um, yeah, I think less formal, more undergirding, like, hey, I kind of remember hearing about how this is a reflection of creation fall redemption, you know? Not either. <laughs> yeah. Therapy or in youth ministry? Youth ministry. Youth ministry. I think these categories, kind of like even with this question, would be helpful for gaining some sort of feel for what they might be, but really like pinpointing where they are is less important even. So, I mean, one of my counseling professors, Jim Cofield, I love him. He almost never even diagnoses because reducing people to a diagnosis can be really detrimental. And so even this is like, how do we label them? And I think we can find power in labeling it could be helpful to look more into it, but I don't know if you really need to do that. <laughs> like, if you have a feel, like I kind of wonder if that's fearful, anxious. You know, you can look at this. You can look more into research of further descriptions, but I'm not sure how much you need to specifically label. Mm -hmm. So you're saying the response would be the same, regardless of where someone falls on this grid. They need deeper relationship with others and then ultimately with Christ. Yeah, deeper relationships with others and Christ. And I think like the, the compassion, the way you approach someone might be different. So that's might be helpful saying like, all right, if they are really someone that's afraid of abandonment, which was in there, then it could be that the way that I bless them the most is through constantly showing up, being consistent in their lives. Like them, they might need to hear the word of the gospel through security and safety of who Christ is. And through another kid, it might be, when you hear the gospel through, um, almost like you're going to be okay when you risk no one's going to leave you. Like, I think maybe that's what's helpful and come back to yours is if you know where someone is, you can speak more directly to the word of hope in Christ they need to hear. And the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you, but um, maybe it's the nuanced ways we understand Christ that he speaks into our wounds that shows up there. Yeah, this is maybe a more specific question, but what is helpful for a youth minister? I've had a lot of girls that struggle with cutting, self-harm, suicide, things like that. And what is helpful for a youth minister doing that? Knowing that they need more help than you can provide, but not also wanting to be like, you need to see a counselor. And like having them feel loved in that, but also getting them to a place not to attach to you, but to... Mm. Yes. So what do we do with students who are self-harm, um, so cutting, they're suicidal, they maybe have depression, eating disorders. What do we do with them? Great, great question. And um, 
when you, this is a whole talk, maybe I should have done that talk, <laughs> triaging your students. Next year. Um, next year, that's right. Um, when you are aware of the point beyond which you can help them, so when you start to say like, okay, this is, I know that I, they are attaching me too much, or I don't even think I'd call that attachment, I'd call it something else. Um, you do want to, A, finding good counselors in your area that you trust is very important. Take them out to lunch and or go out to lunch with them. This is something I do in Chattanooga. Get to know them. See a counselor yourself. There's no one who can do with counseling. And that, when you can say, I'll give this to my clients too, like, my counselor was such a blessing in my life. And being able to speak from your own story and what that's meant and done for you can be helpful. Um, and it could be not a counselor, it could be a pastor or some mentor in your life. But A, if you're afraid to recommend them to a counselor, it's worth asking yourself, what, what am I afraid of? What's hard for me to kind of, there's stigma in a lot of places about counseling, but man, they, they need to be with a counselor, especially in some of those scenarios. And there's still a role in your life as a youth worker. They need, they need multiple types of relationships. So counseling relationship, great. They need the youth pastor relationship too. It's a part of why I love working in the church and having those separate so that I can be a counselor to some and I can also be a youth pastor that's encouraging my girls and other kids to go see counselors. They need that and they need older people in the church. They kind of need all of it. So your role is really important. I do think that encouraging them, it's convicting for me. I have a couple I need to follow up on. Like, just saying, hey, like I think there's someone that can really help you more than I can, and continuing to check in is important. Maybe I'll leave it there. There's, there's more. We can talk more. Yeah. Well, not, um, with some of my girls who dealt with that, offering to go to the counselor yeah. with them. Yeah. Time. Offer to go to the counselor with them. Yeah, physically go. You could you could do that. Some counselors won't sit with you, minister or will, but yeah, be, be as with them as you can. If boundaries become an issue, like some of those with personality disorders, with cutting, learn about healthy boundaries. A lot of us didn't learn about these growing up too. Go get the cloud and tons of boundaries. Like just begin learning about healthy boundaries. That's important too. Then you can know like, okay, here's the point where it's maybe more than it should be or less, or I'm not in a healthy situation. And we all go there. So, yeah. I love that phrase, being a part of the team. Yeah, totally. Part, if you if parents are safe in some place that, that the kid can also go to, being an advocate for the parent, being an advocate for the child, being with it in, in that system, I think is I mean, some other great. Ways, even encouraging the parents that it's okay for their kids to go to the counselor. Right, remove the stigma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do that, do it as much as you can, do it as often as you can. Um, and part of, you do, part of the way you do that is by going to a counselor. Yeah, yeah sharing your own story. Sharing your own story. That's right. Yep. I work in a really affluent context where many of the students will refer to my therapist. Mm. Um, even at a very young age, students who have anxiety, a they like to talk about their diagnoses. I mean, this is very huh. common. Our meds bin, like, um, for, like, <laughs> that are chemically sort of working with their minds mm -hmm. um, when we go to camp or something is huge. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of jaded in a way. It's, it's sort of, they're, oh, I've been seeing a counselor since I was eight. Like, 
They kind of wear it like a badge. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, well, I'm ADHD and I have, you know, a, with borderline personality. Like, they will tell, they will give you the list. Um, and these are students that are also incredibly, <coughs> incredibly overscheduled. They're very wealthy, but they don't know that they're wealthy. They don't share bedrooms with their siblings. They have huge bedrooms of their own that someone comes and cleans. They don't clean their own rooms. Um, and they've been raised in church. Um, and so there's a kind of inoculation to the gospel that occurs. And, and even, to, even to, it's almost that you have to begin in a way at a more elementary level than someone who has a need that's very at the surface. I wondered if you could speak to that because I know there's probably a few other people here that come from a place where these these kids have psychological and psychiatric resources out the wazoo, mm. yeah. but they don't have the gospel. But they but they've heard it their whole lives, but mm. they haven't heard it. Yeah, man. So it's a, it's a very specific contextual question that's actually true for all of our kids who grew up hearing it but not hearing it and knowing it. Um, so some of the details of that are different. And man, they're still terrified to be known and loved. Is what comes to my mind. I mean, what is it? What does it mean to walk with one of those kids to get to the point where they trust you enough to let you beneath the diagnosis, to let you beneath the stigma? That the, these, all, these things have become identity to them, too. They're idols. Even, like, going to therapy is an idol now. It's another good thing that's kind of an ultimate thing or an identity place. And so to even to hear those stories, to listen to them, to just sit and push into being known and pray about what, what speaks to them, which part of the gospel does the Lord bring to mind when you're sitting with them? Is it the hope, the security of love? Is it forgiveness, your sins are east to west? Is it um, really pray into, into that is what I would say. And I think there's no blanket answer for sure. That's, I would love for you to keep asking that with people too and see what folks here have to say. It's a great thing to engage in youth community and to ask all of y'all to just continue to ask together. That would be awesome. Uh, and I think we're out of time, but I'd love to keep talking with you guys as you have questions. And um, and and this stuff does it can bring up a lot. So in, I'd encourage you either if you are stirred up, see a chaplain, see Gil, um, or talk to one another. People that are trusted, a, if you trust someone and they're safe, think about that. And um, take it home. So yeah, thanks for coming.